Pictured here is a parody icon of Jesus that first appeared in the 1999 movie Dogma. It's called Buddy Christ. You know, it's a statue of a, a toothy, smiling, winking Jesus-like figure who is pointing at onlookers with one hand and giving a thumbs-up sign with the other hand. It's you may have seen it before. It has since been mass-produced. You can buy, you know, the slicked-back hair and the, the goofy, toothy grin for under $10. I mean, it's easy to dismiss Buddy Christ as the moderately uh, sacrilegious figure that it is. But if you look a little more deeply, you realize that it is, it's confronting us with the struggle that every one of us has, and that is our Jesus is too small. Like, our conception of Jesus Christ is way too small, and similarly, he is cast too much into our own image, into, you know, whatever we want him to be, a buddy, you know, a a cosmic life coach, a a yoga instructor, you know, what have you. Our Jesus is is way too small, and here's a fascinating thing. Like, most religions think they actually have a high view of Jesus. Jehovah's Witness, they say that Jesus is the highest created being. He's, He's basically kind of like a step above the archangel Michael. Islam considers him the greatest of the prophets. Once, not the greatest, but one of the greatest of the prophets. Buddhism says that he was a highly, highly enlightened man, almost as enlightened as the Buddha. And then in Mormonism, he is the offspring of the father, together along with his brother, Lucifer, who is also an offspring of the father. And they think they have like high view, like a very high view of Jesus. And we think we probably have a high view of him too, an orthodox high view. Like he's the second person of the Trinity. He's the son of God. But according to our passage today, Colossians 1, um, I, would, I would suggest to you that our view of him is not nearly high enough. And this is, what we're about to read is nosebleed, Christ, nosebleed Christianity. You know that when a mountaineer goes high up a mountain, the I guess the air pressure and the blood vessels um, it exceeds the air pressure outside, and so that's what ends up creating, you know, nosebleeds at high altitude. And what Paul is going to do here is take us to the highest place. Like, this is the highest view of Jesus in all the Bible. It's like cosmic Christ that we're going to look at. Um, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, his church, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, uh, drive home to us the point from this passage that, that everything we do as Christians should be for the sake and the name of Jesus, that he be glorified and that we be ever thankful for him. It's such a basic point, Lord, but one which we certainly need frequent reminders of. Everything should be for the sake and the name of Jesus, that we would be truly, truly thankful 
um, on this week of Thanksgiving. We pray it in his name. God's people said, amen. So I'm not able to cover everything in those five verses. You probably already got the idea. It's, it's jam-packed. I'm going to hit about five of the eight, eight or nine that are there. The first is image and icon. So the second commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. And you shall not bow down to them or worship them. It's the Ten Commandments prohibition on uh, idolatry. And God, the Father, is invisible. Several biblical passages make that clear. The Father has not been seen cannot be seen, will not be seen. Neither he nor the Holy Spirit is ever going to be seen by by our eyes because they're both invisible. And when God in the second commandment says that I don't want you to worship me through through the use of icons and images, his reasoning is quite simple. And it's this, none of those portray me correctly. Like there is not an image that, that mankind can fashion that gives an accurate representation of me. He's like, I'm not a golden calf. I'm not like a golden calf. I'm not like a moon. I'm not like a, a bird. I'm not like a fish. And as you know, like all throughout human history, people have wanted to see their gods. So they turn to nature to create images of God. But God in the second commandment um, anticipated a day, one day in the future, when a true image would come. The image, the, the, the icon that would, that would be seen and that would accurately image him. Like in John chapter 14, verse 9, it's a story of Jesus having a conversation with one of his disciples whose name is Philip. And Philip says, uh, we have never seen God the Father. And Jesus replies famously to him and says, Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So here you have a picture of me and my dad. Uh, this is Christmas of 1983. The, what's always interesting about pictures of fathers and sons is you usually can trace out the lines of family resemblance, can't you? Like you look at, the, look at the one, you see the other. You look at the other, you see the, the one. I don't know if this is a great um, example because a lot of people have told me I don't look a whole lot like my dad. Uh, do you see the, the resemblance between us there? Um, my dad, yeah, my dad is not the Santa Claus there. <laughs> dad is with the, is with the beard. Um, there was a chaplain in um, World War II who was tending to a dying British soldier. This chaplain ended up becoming very famous later on as a theologian. But he was kneeling down, whispering into the ear of this dying soldier. And the soldier asked him, Padre, Padre, is God really like Jesus? And he said in reply, he is exactly like Jesus. Jesus is the mirror of the Father who is invisible, the icon that reflects him perfectly. And I mean, this means so many things, but one of them is simply that if you, when you see Jesus' love, you see the Father's love. When you see you know, Jesus' truth is the Father's truth. Jesus' forgiveness is the Father's forgiveness. Jesus' justice is the Father's justice. And when you look at the Son in the photo, it it is showing you exactly what the Father looks like. And so if you want to know how God would treat the poor and the broken, well, you just, you just look at Jesus, how Jesus treats the poor and the broken. Or you want to know how God feels about sinners when they made a mess of their lives. Well, you just look at how Jesus responds because that tells you how the Father responds. And that is something to be deeply, deeply and truly thankful for. He correct, he's the first icon ever that was accurate. 
And before moving on, I just want to say one other thing, that when we have conversations with our friends who are not Christians, uh, or who are not yet Christians, and they're wondering, like, where, where do I start? I, I want to know more about God. I want to figure God out. Like, where do I go? Where do I begin? What we got to say to them over and over is start with Jesus. Read about Jesus. Don't look inside yourself and ask, oh, what's the way that I want God to be? But like, no, research, study, meet, meet Jesus. When you meet Jesus, you meet God. <laughs> you meet God. Icon and image. Secondly, firstborn and creator. Here's a curious feature about language that somebody got me thinking about recently. That when you have a compound word, so one word that is the, the, you know, put together two words, right? And you try to pull those apart, what often ends up happening is you end up with a meaning that is the exact opposite of what the compound word originally meant. For example, the word driveway. Try to pull that one apart. You're going to drive away. And you think, well, a driveway, well, that's just a, that must be a way in which you drive and drive and drive. No, in actuality, it's a place where you park. Or take the next word, a, a parkway, <laughs> and pull that apart. Now, you think that's a place that you park. No, it's actually a place that you drive. That's one of the funny characteristics of, of language. And the m- mistake that people have made is they try to pull apart firstborn. And they say, and this is just long debate in church history of, oh, if Jesus is the firstborn, that means the firstborn of creation. That means that he is the very first created being. Um, and the whole rest of the Bible says that's not true. But um, no, it's not right. It's actually just the opposite. He wasn't the created first offspring of God. He, he is the eternal son. And the, theology goes into great detail of trying to figure out all of the ramifications of that. But what, what it would have meant to them is a firstborn son in the Middle East in the first century. Like that is the one, the firstborn son kind of got it all. All the honor, all the rights, all the privileges. And ultimately the firstborn son would inherit the lion's share of the family estate. Like, he really got it all. It got me thinking this week, um, how much do I stand in line to inherit? And the answer is, not a whole lot. Um, My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a golf cart salesman. My mom's deceased. My dad has dementia. I mean, we, we all know, like, the ridiculous amount of expenses with assisted living and pharmacies and doctors and all of that. Like, by the time... Dad goes to meet Jesus. There's not going to be very much left for me and my sister. And I, I don't, I don't care. I, I mean, I don't really, I don't want it. I just wish I had more time with my dad. How much does the son stand to inherit everything? <laughs> Absolutely everything. Like the father says to his firstborn son, like this is mine, and I give it all to you, to you, my son. You may have seen this famous quote before. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Now, I have to admit to you that this quote, famous, it's kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe because I'm, I hear it, I hear it the wrong way. I, I hear like, he does not cry mine, and I hear a, a, a cranky little toddler saying mine, you know, because that's what it, it's all mine. But that's not, that's not how, how it's being spoken, right? Instead, it's the words of a masterful artist who's looking at the canvas and says, um, this is mine. 
I painted this. I made this. This is my creation, son, and I give it all to you. And then we don't have enough time to follow the crazy line of argumentation that Paul makes later in some of his writings, but simply he says that Jesus decides to take that inheritance and share it with us. (laughs) So apparently I am in line to inherit a lot. Like the whole cosmic universe. Somehow, some crazy way that I don't understand, that inheritance gets shared like with the person sitting next to you. That's amazing. So the firstborn, he's also the creator. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. The son is the image of God, the firstborn of over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the author of creation. But I... Aaron just read for us from the beginning of the book of the, the beginning book of the Bible, Genesis, how the Spirit was there also at, at creation. That the Spirit was hovering over these waters of total chaos. I love how the Bible depicts the um, universe as basically this blank, empty space with a watery, like amorphous ball kind of hanging there in the middle of space. And the, the spirit is almost pictured like a dove um, hovering over creation. And then later on in the story, you know, it's the spirit who's the one who generally is associated with giving um, life into the living creatures. So what is it? Is it the son who is the author, who's made all things? Or is it the spirit who breathes life into all things? And uh, One of the early church fathers, he, he put it so well. He said, He said this, the Son and the Spirit were the hands that the Father used in the creation of the world. The Father created all things by his right hand and his left hand, by the Son and by the Spirit. And one, I got to tell you, one of my favorite parts about living here in South Scottsdale is being right up against the Pima um, Maricopa Indian community. And you know, you're driving along the 101. The 101 is elevated maybe 30 or 40 feet above the valley floor. And when you look out to the east and you see the usury mountains, you see the superstitions, you see Red Mountain. Um, And when you're driving along on the 101, taking your daughter to school in the morning and the sun is just coming up and the the superstitions are just bathed in the pink and the purple and the, the glorious gold. You know what I'm talking about. What I say is thank you, because the Father's right hand and the Father's left hand made thee. And that's something to be thankful for. Um, here's another thing that we can say to somebody who is, is thinking about Christianity, thinking about faith. It, if you love the art, shake the hands of the artist, right? If you love the art, do you love the created world? Do you love the sunrises? Do you love the sunsets and mountains and beaches and the animals? And do you love your own dog and, and your cat and your bird? And Fantastic. Like, meet the one who is behind it all. We know him. His name is Jesus. And I don't know that I have the boldness to say that to to a neighbor, but I should, because it's true. If you love the art, shake the hands of the artist. He's the firstborn. He's the creator. Number three, he is the sustainer. Uh, Do a little thought experiment for a second. Humor me. The Bible that is in the pew in front of most of you, that Bible is made of paper, and paper is, you know, made of trees and trees of molecules. And molecules are made of atoms. 
And atoms are made of a nucleus orbited by protons, or electrons, rather. And the atomic nucleus is built of protons. And every proton is made of what? Inside of every proton lies this deep, unsettling truth that inside, there's really nothing there. <laughs> there's, written, there's nothing inside the proton. Like, it's just... It's just space. I mean, it's infinitesimally small space, but it, it's space nonetheless. Like, what holds it all together? What holds everything together? What's the invisible glue that holds it all together? He tells us in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Like, when it says that he's before all things, it means he existed before time, space, and matter. And when it says he holds all things together— like, Paul is taking us to the highest point here. He's saying the reason, the reason that the, 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 the proton holds together, the reason there is order instead of a world of chaos, of watery chaos, of total chaos, is because he's got the, the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world. And we, we learned that as a child. That he's got the little bitty babies in his hands. He's got you and me and sister in his hands and in like, actually, the theology of that is so much deeper and right than we ever realized. The reason everything doesn't collapse is because he holds it together. Mysteriously, it's his hands. You know, another way of putting it is that Jesus is the linchpin. Um, just as water, just as without water, the body shrivels and dies, just as without glue, a, a book, it's just going to Pages are going to fall out. He is the linchpin. Um, he holds it all together. Without, without Jesus, the universe collapses. And very personally, he's holding you together. I mean, even in the midst of what you might be going through, he holds us together. Even when we distrust him, even when we deny him, even when, even when, we're, when we hate him, even, even when we're unfaithful, he is faithful. He, he holds us together even to allow us you know, to be upset with him for long enough that we might come to our sense. And we're about to celebrate at Christmas that Jesus is small enough to be a fertilized egg in the womb of a 13 to 15 year old Jewish girl. A fertilized egg is a mere 100 microns in circumference. I mean, we can't even get our fingers that close together. We know that, and it blows my mind, when they do studies on skeletons of first century Jewish men, the average height of a first century, first century Jewish man, five feet, one inches tall, one inch. And the average weight, 110 pounds. Like so small. He, he, he is so small and yet on another level, his divine nature is so vast, so in, incomprehensibly enormous and powerful that he holds the cosmos all together. That's something to be thankful for. <laughs> as is the ones that I'm not going to touch on here, that he is the head of the church. Paul says, you know, he's the head, we're the body. He's in charge. I am not, we are not. He is the resurrected one, the, the firstborn from the dead. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells, Paul says. But I'm going to skip ahead to number four. He's also, he's also the reconciler. You know, recon that's just a phrase of, to reconcile is to take two people who are estranged, two who are, who are enemies, and you make them friends. And on the cross, um, isn't it interesting that he's crucified, you know, there in the midst of criminals? 
He's stretched out on the cross with his arms like this. And, and there's a man who's clearly an enemy of God, crucified right next to him and stretched out. He takes the full weight and burden of the sins of not only that man, but of humanity. And he serves as the bridge between God and man. And, you know, one of the beauties of early Christianity was that the reconciling force of Jesus on the cross had a sociological element, which was the people. <laughs> that he took these, this fellowship of differences, like people as different and people as naturally alienated as any kind of people would be, and he would put them together in the same church. I already gave you this information if you were at one of our formation meetings months ago, but it still blows my mind, and, and some of you never heard it. So in 2009, a British scholar basically did research and tried to come up with what he thought would be a representation of a house church, of a, a church that Paul would establish in the first century, say in the city of Rome. Like, what did that, what did that house church look like? Well, it looked like 30 people. <laughs> that was, the first thing was, it was probably only 30 people. And here's who would have been in the house of this house church. A craft worker in whose home they meet, along with his wife, children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, and a dependent relative. Some tenants um, with families and slaves and dependents also living in the same home in rented rooms. Uh, other family members of the householder who himself, um, who, who did not participate in the house church, but were there. A couple of slaves whose owners did not attend. Some freed slaves who do not participate in the church. Um, a couple of homeless people. A few migrant workers renting renting rooms in the house. Add to this mix some Jewish folk and perhaps an enslaved prostitute. And you see, like, whoa, there were a lot of different tastes in that church. A whole lot of different ideas, a whole lot of different families of origin. Uh, you know, men and women, citizens and freed slaves and slaves who had no legal rights and Jews and Gentiles and people from all walks of life. And perhaps most notably, you notice at the end of his letters, not only does he address slaves, but he'll say something like, to the city treasurer, Ampliatus, please give my greetings. Um, it was notably people also from elite classes, all the way down the social scale, you know, to people who were, you know, homeless and had absolutely nothing. Do you think that the early Christians agreed with each other about everything? No, of course not. Was life together in community hard? Of course it was. Then why do they do it? How could they do it? It was because the blood of Jesus reconciled them. And it's because that's how God designed the church. The heart of Paul's mission was to reconcile and to make a fellowship of difference, of differences, of difference. It's hard to even say that word. You know, different would put an S on the end of it. A fellowship of difference. You know, and obviously given the name of our church, Reconciled Church of South Scottsdale, that is, that's what we aspire to be, a fellowship of difference. Um, let me say one last thing personally to you, and this could apply to our church family, or it might apply to your own biological family. Um, in relationship to reconciliation, here's what, here's what I'd say. If a relationship breaks down, it's your responsibility to initiate the repair. Now, I wish that wasn't what Jesus taught, because <laughs> I don't like having to uh, to go and initiate repair. But it, it is, in fact, what he taught. In Matthew 5, he says, quote, If your brother has something against you, go to him. In, in Matthew 18, he says, quote, If you have something against your brother, 
go to him. In other words, it doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter who started it. It's your responsibility to end it. It's, as much as you can, as much as it is within your power, a Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation as much as it is in their power, regardless of how the alienation began. Presumably, these early Christians, they did that because it was just part of the teaching of Jesus. And it's probably the only way that their churches actually survived. Um, and it's probably, you know, the only way that ours will is if we initiate reconciliation. When we do so, we're following in the way of Jesus, who initiated reconciliation between us and the Father. As like, and when we gaze at the cross, stretched out as he was between two criminals, like his blood that is dripping down that cross is the blood that makes enemies friends. And that's you know, at the heart of Paul's gospel. Reconciler. I got to get to number five quickly. Supremacy. And I'm taking this from verse 18 where it says, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In everything. And I think you already know this, but I just want to remind you, the first thing, the supremacy in our lives, is not our career, it's not our grades, it's not our body image, it's not our family. Everything, everything, everything was designed by God so that he, Jesus would have the supremacy. And like when you and I put Jesus first, all we're really doing is just coming to our senses and aligning ourselves with the way that everything is. That in everything, he might be first. Like Jesus first, Jesus first is realism. It's realism. Jesus second, Jesus third, Jesus fourth, Jesus fifth is farcical. It's make-believe. It's sacrilege. It's buddy Christ. It's falseness. Jesus second, Jesus third, Jesus fourth, Jesus fifth, Jesus in competition with a myriad of other things in my life, and I, I set him to the side. That Jesus that I set lower in the pecking order is a caricatured Christ, every bit as ugly and as dumb and demeaning as the one I put on the screen at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus first is realism, and in the same way, um, gratitude is realism, because in gratitude, you recognize things as they really are. Uh, you, you recognize that this entire world is the dazzling and undeserved gift of Jesus to the, to the rest of us. Gratitude is realism. Like Thanksgiving is not just a holiday. It's a way of life. It's the way of life. Because in thankfulness, we are awakened to God's, to Jesus' presence in this world. Um, and it keeps us alert that with what has been called you know, concentrated wonderment, that every sip of coffee, every windblown leaf, every man or woman you meet is worthy of astonished contemplation because everything is just charged with the grandeur of the giving son. And that's why gratitude, it always follows Jesus first because you're, you're finally seeing this, this wonderful, incredible world for what it is, as made by him. Let me finish with a quick story. As a baseball fan, as an Arizona Diamondback fan, uh, I, I couldn't help but be very happy to see who won the National League Most Valuable Player this past week, the longtime Diamondback, Paul Goldschmidt, who we traded away, one of our, our bad decisions, and now he's with the St. Louis Cardinals. Goldschmidt grew up in a suburb outside of Houston in the Woodlands, and, and he was a good high school player, baseball player. He wasn't great. 
I guess what was great about him was his ability to get a little bit better every year. He, everybody says that he has just this indomitable work ethic, and he'd, he'd get a little better, he'd get a little better. He got a college scholarship, not to a tremendous baseball program, Texas State University in San Marcos. He played at Texas State, and then got a little better, a little better, to be drafted in the 49th round of the, the Major League Baseball draft. And I want to let you... Um, hear him in his own words. He says, I think back, you know, there were coaches who maybe talked about their faith in Jesus and God, but yeah, I, I wasn't really wanting to hear it. I either thought there was no God or, or you know, if there is a God, I'll figure it out later. It was not a top priority for me. But I, in 2011, I was in AA in Mobile, um, Alabama, uh, yeah, Mobile, Alabama, playing for the Mobile Bay Bears, an affiliate of the Diamondbacks. And our manager at that time was Turner Ward. And we go to the batting cage, and, and you know, I, I hit early, and we take like 50 to 60 swings and work on my swing, and then we'd sit there for 20 to 30 minutes, and we just talk about life. And I asked him the question, like, Turner, what do I need to do to get better? And he said, well, if you give me a couple of weeks, I'll tell you. And I thought, is there that much stuff? <laughs> and what he did is, is we sat down, and it was the first time I read anything in the Bible. We started the book of Proverbs. And I just think, you know, there's, whether you're a believer or not, there's so much truth. This is, these are his words, right? There's so much truth in those sayings, the Proverbs. And, and that's, you know, probably the first time when my mind was open to what the Bible says. Like, it isn't a lie. And I started asking questions and, and getting answers from Turner and just kind of wanted to explore more and more. And he talked to me about Jesus. And then I started to believe in Jesus. And, and, and that's where my story of knowing Jesus starts. Now, Paul Goldschmidt, uh, uh, that was verbatim. He's not going to win any, any uh, public speaker awards. He did win the MVP. And at the end of this video, it was an, actually an ad campaign. You probably, you may have seen it because they did it with Steph Curry. They did it with others. But the camera just looks, he looks straight into the camera and he says, my name is Paul Goldschmidt and I am second. And Steph Curry did the same thing. My name is Stephen Curry and I am second. And that, that's such a great way of expressing like what it means to be a Christian. Because it's always Jesus first. Jesus, the first image. Jesus, the first icon. Jesus, the firstborn. Jesus, the first creator. Jesus, the first and only sustainer. Jesus, the reconciler. Jesus, the supreme. And that's something to be thankful for on this week of Thanksgiving. Amen? Amen.